This show is for adult listeners and may contain harsh language, sexual contact, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is dedicated to Edmonton true crime. This is episode 8. My sources are CBC News, Global Mail, Edmonton Journal, National Post, and Edmonton Sun. Nina Louise Cordopat is remembered as a beautiful girl with passion for movies, music, and dancing. She was a gifted artist with a special talent for drawing and writing. Nina wanted to be famous and dreamt about becoming a model and actress. Shortly before her death, she was a winner of a local modeling contest. On April 3, 2005, Nina was brutally raped and murdered on a golf course outside of Edmonton. Five people have been tried in connection with her murder. Nina will be forever cherished by her mother, Picha, her father, Tim, Darcy, Anne, Patrick, Ethan, family, and friends. Nina was born on October 3, 1991, in Edmonton, Alberta. Born with long, thick, dark hair, Nina was a very happy and inquisitive infant. She brought much joy to her family. She was very curious, and her mother, Picha Atkinson, laughingly recalls how Nina would try to chew on practically everything. She attended Aboriginal Head Start, an early childhood development program for Aboriginal children and their families. As she grew, Nina became more vocal and outspoken. Her parents encouraged her to use her voice. They taught her about safety and how to stand up for herself. Picha believes these early teachings had a strong influence on Nina, who was very compassionate. She liked to take care of people. Nina did her best to support and encourage classmates who were being picked on, telling them that they were beautiful and had inner strength. She was not afraid to challenge people. If she thought a teacher was wrong, she would stand up and refuse to sit down until they acknowledged their mistake. In grade 6, Nina participated in the D.A.R.E. program, Drug Abuse Resistance Education. Picha remembers watching the bemused as Nina reprimanded a stranger she caught smoking next to a non-smoking sign. When Nina was 8, the family moved to the Dunluce area of Edmonton, and Picha recounts a series of bad experiences that occurred during their time there. It started when Nina realized that she, could scare, that she could scare her mother by hiding outside in the dark. The behavior escalated. Not understanding the significance or consequences of her words, Nina began to tell people that she was being abused. Picha and her husband tried to address Nina's behavior, but it was too late. Child and family services were called. Nina was never removed from the home as child welfare workers found nothing to confirm the allegations. The family later moved to the west end of Edmonton, and after that, Picha says that Nina was much happier and her behavior really improved. Family was important to Nina, and she had many close relationships. The fourth of six siblings, Nina was very protective of her younger brother and sister. She would not let any harm come to them. As a child, she liked to tell them stories and would dress them up using makeup and nail polish. When she was older, she liked to make pancakes and eggs for her family on weekends. Nina had a very special relationship with her older brother, Patrick. Apart from her diary, Patrick was one that Nina confided in the most. He was the one she went to when she needed to talk. Nina was also very attached to her mother. Picha was learning Cree, and as she learned new words and phrases, she would teach them to Nina. 
Nina had a very vivid imagination, and her passion for drama led her to write and act out her own performances. She was involved with the Boys and Girls Club of Edmonton and acted in many of their plays. She loved shows like American Idol, Canadian Idol, and America's Next Top Model. Despite her young age, Nina was absolutely determined to realize her dreams and begged her mother to contact modeling and acting agencies in Edmonton. If for some reason Picha did not phone when she said she would, Nina would make the call herself. She was always looking for ways to make her dreams come true. Nina was rewarded for her determination when in the summer of 2004 she won a local modeling contest and was invited to enroll in Chan's International Professional Modeling Program. Nina was a popular and social girl. She made friends very fast. Peter notes that Nina, like many youths, tried to challenge the rules. However, she also emphasized that Nina always called home when she was supposed to and always came home when she said she would. On March 30, 2005, Nina said she would like to spend the weekend at a friend's house. This was not unusual. The girls had been friends for years and were practically inseparable. A few days later, Peter got a phone call from the friend's mother. She asked to speak to her daughter, saying that the girls had told her they were staying at Nina's house. It was then that Peter learned that Nina's friend had developed a pattern of running away for three or four days at a time. Her mother tried to stop her without any success. The friend's mother told Picha not to worry that the girls would certainly come home in a couple of days, but Picha was worried. She phoned Nina's friends, she called the youth shelter and the iHuman Youth Society, she called every organization she could think of. Despite being deeply concerned, Picha fully expected that the girls would return home in a day or two. Given her previous experiences with child and family services, it is not surprising that Picha did not call the police. Two days later, Picha learnt that a body of a girl Nina's age had been found in the Edmonton Springs golf course. She immediately contacted the Edmonton Police Services. The police asked a series of difficult questions. Did she have a habit? Did she drink? Has she run away before? They also asked for a picture of Nina. When they came back the next day, Picha knew it was Nina. She was only 13 years old. Five people, two adults, and three youth were tried in connection with Nina's murder. One of the adults, Michael Briscoe, was initially acquitted of all charges. The Crown appealed this decision in 2008. The Alberta Courts of Appeal found that Justice Brian Burroughs had erred in his judgment and ordered a retrial. Joseph Laboucan, the other adult charged, was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Laboucan appealed in June 2008, but the conviction was upheld. Picha is lobbying to have Laboukan declared a dangerous offender. Despite his life sentence, Laboukan is still eligible to apply for the so-called Faint Hope Clause, and Picha intends to do anything she can to block this application. Of the three youths, Michael Williams pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 10 years. Williams was sentenced as an adult, but is appealing this decision. Like with Laboucan, Picha is lobbying to have Williams declared a dangerous offender. Stephanie Bird, another youth, was convicted of manslaughter, kidnapping, and aggravated sexual assault. She was sentenced as an adult to 12 years, 9 years with time served. However, the Crown is still seeking a murder conviction and has appealed Justice Ross's decision. In August 2008, Picha was shocked and horrified to learn that Bird had already been granted two escort date passes, allowing her to leave the correctional facility. 
The third youth, a young woman known as Buffy, was convicted of second-degree murder and aggravated sexual assault in July 2008. She was tried as a young offender and cannot be named. She is scheduled to be sentenced in March 2009. When asked about her experiences with the criminal justice system, Peach is very critical. She argues that sentencing should exclude time served in custody, that a prison sentence should begin on the day of sentencing. Peach is also lobbying for changes to the Youth Criminal Justice Act so that violent offenders can be named in the media and tried and sentenced as adults regardless of their age. Peach believes more programs are needed for youth involved in the criminal justice system. She argues for strong intervention and points to the documentary Scared Straight as a potential model. Peach says although they have been convicted, the youth are not taking responsibility for Nina's murder. She describes one particular instance in which one of the youths waved at her in the courtroom. Picho wishes she could have contact with some of the witnesses connected to the case, particularly Nina's friend and the man who found her daughter's body. However, by law she is not permitted to communicate with them until, until the trials have concluded. Picho understands the purpose of this, but knows that they are suffering too. She would love to sit in a circle with them. She says that not being able to talk about what happens makes it more difficult to heal, not only for her own family, but for other families involved. Peter describes her relationship with the police officers that investigated Nina's murder as positive. She knows that other families have encountered discrimination, but was not her experience. She believes Nina's age and the brutality of her murder pressed police into immediate action. Peter believes that the officers were truly horrified by what had been done to Nina and worked overtime, sometimes without pay, to find the people responsible. A few officers went so far as to promise Peter that Nina's murders would be caught and punished. It was a close relationship, with officers calling regularly to inform her of new developments. It should be noted, however, that Peter was very assertive about her rights as Nina's mother. Once police released information to the media without informing her first, she called the police immediately, demanding to know why she was not notified. Almost immediately after Nina's death, the media reported on the family's interaction with Child and Family Services. The grief of losing Nina was compounded by malicious reports of alleged abuse. Some reporters went to so far to insinuate that had she been apprehended by Child, Family, and Services, Nina might still be alive. The family was devastated. Peaches says the media reported without knowing the truth. They did not represent the situation accurately, basing their stories on what other people said, people who are not truly connected with or authorized to speak on behalf of the family. Mindful of this violation, she did not speak to the media for two years after Nina's murder. She has since broken her silence, but remains extremely cautious. She says reporters have tried to confuse her by rephrasing questions that she had already f refused to answer trying to get her to say what they wanted to hear. She recalls one particular incident in which a reporter wanted her to comment on a statement made by one of the offenders. Peter said she had not heard the statement and more importantly that she did not want to know what had been said. The reporter responded by repeating the offender's statement to her so that she could commit, comment on it and give him a story. In recounting her experiences, Peter emphasizes the need for better resources for families. She stresses the need for more information about where family members can get help, financial assistance, and support for healing. 
She knew nothing about victim services and had no idea where to access the help she needed, such as financial support to give Nina a funeral. Petra approached her community of the Onion Lake Cree Nation but was refused financial support on the grounds that she did not live in the community and that Nina was not a status Indian. It was only when Picha approached a funeral home to inquire about payment options that she learned that she could apply for victim's package. Although grateful for this support, the victim's package did not resolve all of the family's needs. Because the funds were limited, Picha was forced to choose cremation over burial, and when administrative error delayed her claim, making it impossible for her to pay for the services, the funeral home took her small claims court and refused to release Nina until the bill was paid in full. Money continues to be the source of anxiety. In the months following Nina's death, Picha was not ready to return to work, but worried that unless she was able to claim long-term disability, she would have no choice but to go back before she was ready. Recounting this experience, Picha says people need to recognize that grief affects everyone differently. It is often assumed that depression occurs immediately after tragedy, but this was not always the case. In fact, it can be months or years before those affected experience depression. Just says employers need to acknowledge this and change their policies accordingly. Employees should be able to take time off for healing when they need it, instead of being restricted, restricted to a short-term period immediately after the event. Picha emphasizes the need for more support and understanding from members of both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal -Abor communities. In the days and months following Nina's murder, Picha felt very alone. She was the only one who sat through all four trials. Family and friends made the point of coming to the first trial, especially the sentencing, but she was the only one sitting there consistently every day for every trial. And not everyone was supportive. Picha speaks of being deserted by certain friends and family members, of experiencing an overwhelming feel feeling of abandonment. There were hurtful and judgmental comments like, oh, if only you didn't let her go out. Picha says that she sometimes feels as though she is carrying an infection that no one wants to catch. She relates how after Nina's death, she tried to find new housing. When the landlord found out who she was, she was refused. Perhaps more than anything else, Picha wants to help other families with similar experiences. She says that after Nina's murder, family and friends did not know how to act around her did not know what to say. It was a lonely position to be in, made worse because of what Picha needed more than anything else was someone to talk to. Picha says that victim services workers did not know how to deal with families that have lost someone to murder. Although Picha received some direction from other families, she was essentially left to find her own supports. She says this information needs to be more accessible, preferably under one roof. Picha wishes there were more supports for families in trying to fill the gap. She gives her phone number to other families that are on the same journey. She shares her experiences dealing with both police and the courts, advising families of their rights, trying to prepare them for the process ahead. She is frustrated, however, by fe the feeling that there are more resources available to offenders than to families. She says family members also need to access to supports like healing circles and counseling, but these services can be expensive and not everyone can afford to pay. Picha is advocating for better financial supports for families, resources for counseling, or attend conferences on grief and healing. 
In honor of Nina, Picha has founded the Nina's Dream Trust Fund. The fund provides scholarships for youth interested in the arts. Scholarships are available for young women and men, as Picha believes there need to be better recognition of the abuse and other harms experienced by boys. Through Nina's dreams, Picha hopes to encourage other young people to pursue their dreams. Apart from her activism, Picha is focused on her family. She has two other children to look after, and it is her kids to keep her going. And she needs time to work on her own healing. After all, Picha has a lot to do. She wants to make Nina's dreams come true. RCMP investigating the murder of a 13-year-old Edmonton girl whose body was found bludgeoned on a golf course say they're disturbed at the apparently cold, calculated nature of her death. At the press conference Wednesday, RCMP said the murder of Nina Louise Cordopat was premeditated. It's very disturbing to see and to understand that it was a pre-planned incident, said Constable Craig Albers with the Stony Plains Spruce Grove Detachment. She was taken out, misled with information, and suffered a very violent death. It is disturbing to all investigators and probably almost to anybody in the community. Four people have been charged with first-degree murder, including a 34-year-old Edmonton man, a 19-year-old from Fort St. John, two 17-year-olds from Edmonton, one of them female, have also been charged. They made their first court appearance this morning. The victim's sister, Trandis Arsenault, said the family are reeling. There's no reason, and we're trying to cope as best as we can. There has been a lot of support from everybody, and we're trying to understand exactly why they wanted to hurt her, she said. Arsenault said that her sister had a cheerful disposition and had aspirations of becoming a model. Albert said two of the accused were known to the victim, and she appears to have gone willingly to the Edmonton Springs Golf Resort, where her body was discovered April 4th. Police say that they were led to the suspects through footage obtained on security cameras at West Edmonton Mall. Cordopat's parents reported Nina missing two days after her body was found on the fourth fairway of the golf course. They had last seen her on April 1st, though they had talked to her on the phone on April 3rd. The discovery of the girl's body attracted the attention of Project CARE, a task force investigating the death or disappearance of about 80 sex trade workers in Western Canada. However, police said there was no sign that Cordopat was involved in a high-risk lifestyle. The autopsy showed no sign of sexual assault, and the girl had not been using drugs or alcohol at the time of her death, police said. She was a bright, beautiful 13-year-old shining star, her family recalled, but Nina Louise Cordopat's star fell from the sky in what police are calling a chilling premeditated murder. Nina's body was found at Edmonton Springs Golf Resort on April 4th. An autopsy indicated the cause of death was blunt force trauma. The girl who was known to hang around the giant retail complex and familiar to the mall security was last seen by her parents with friends April 1st. Nina last spoke with her parents on the telephone shortly after midnight April 2nd. There was no indication at that time the parents should be concerned, Constable Albert said. Police believe Nina knew two of the accused. They also believe she went to the golf course willingly. It took several more days before police released her name. The four charged with first-degree murder, Michael Aaron Briscoe, 34, of Edmonton, Joseph Labouquin, 19, of Fort St. John, B.C., and a 17-year-old youth and girl from Edmonton, all appeared in Stony Plain, Alberta, Provincial, provincial Court yesterday, 
Relatives of Nina, who watched the proceedings, struggled to understand what had happened. Her sister, Trandis Arsenault, 31, hadn't seen Nina since she was seven, but her memories are still vivid. She was energetic, smart, and beautiful, said Miss Arsenault, who lives in Winnipeg. Every time I saw her, it was great because she was always smiling and laughing and cheerful and outgoing. She was so sensitive and sweet. I remember going to birthday parties, bringing her a big cake, having her jump up and down. She'd be smiling and happy and running around, just being a kid. That's all gone now. Nina had been offered a local modeling scholarship after entering a talent show. In court, a handcuffed Mr. Briscoe appeared agitated and mouthed, I didn't do it, in the directions of his mother and brother who were in the court. I don't know what's going on, said Violet Briscoe, who lives north of Edmonton. Brother Darren Briscoe, 36, said he was just as shocked as his mother. I was not aware he was in custody. A man who described himself as a friend of Mr. Laboucan's also expressed surprise at the charges. I believe he's being pinned for something he didn't do, said the man, who wouldn't re reveal his name. He's an easy-going, caring guy. Constable Albert said that the charges resulted from a joint effort among Stony Plain and area RCMP detachments, Edmonton City Police, Alberta's RCMP Project Care Task Force, and West Edmonton Mall Security. Pregnant, craving crystal meth, and on an adrenaline adrenaline high from her part in the murder of Nina Cordopat, a death-obsessed Edmonton teen said she and Joseph Laboucan trolled White Ave hours later searching for another victim. The teen nicknamed Buffy and Laboucan, who was also on an adrenaline rush, had a female named Becky in mind. He wants to kill someone else, said Buffy. Buffy testified Laboucan said he knew Becky too, and the intended victim trusted him. We drove around, but we couldn't find her, Buffy said. Driving the car was a 36-year-old Michael Briscoe accused with the 21-year-old Laboucan of the kidnapping, rape, and first-degree murder of Nina, court was told. Buffy testified it's possible Briscoe wasn't in the car when she and Laboucan allegedly discussed the second killing. Buffy will be tried later for Nina's murder but can't be named because she was a youth at the time of the April 2005 murder. Buffy previously told court that before he allegedly raped and sledgehammered Nina to death, Laboucan told Nina and her friend that psychotic killers murdered people centuries ago and tried to bring them back to life. Buffy, nicknamed after the pop culture character Buffy the Vampire Slayer, testified Monday that she too believes in the rituals and the occult. Back then, Buffy said she prayed to the devil. She read witchcraft books and sucked blood, including her own. A week before Nina's murder, she burned Bibles with her fiancé, nicknamed Pyro, and Nina's friend. Pyro, a male teen, has already pleaded guilty to first-degree murder. When asked by Laboucan's co-counsel, Angela Alphonse, whether Pyro and Nina's friend planned some sort of ritual killing, Buffy replied it could be possible. Buffy testified that she was obsessed with murder and death and agreed when Alphonse asked if she believed murderers gained power from killing people. It's like when people sacrifice animals to God, Buffy said. Buffy recalled on the stand mon on Monday how she was angry with Pyro for also raping Nina, yet she later put her foot on Nina's stomach to hold her still while Pyro sledgehammered her.
The self-described mall rat described how often she slept at West Edmonton Mall and frequently ran away from home because her mother's partner beat her. She said that she has been taking coke, crack, meth, weed, hash, and mushrooms since she was 14 and that her drug use caused hallucinations and memory problems. Alphonse pressed Buffy about why she remembered some details of Nina's murder clearly and not others at all. The lawyer asked if her memory problems could have been caused by her crystal meth use or by demonic possession, and Buffy agreed. Court has already heard that Buffy knew Nina's friend and Briscoe, but didn't know Nina, La Boucan or Briscoe's girlfriend, another co-accused in Nina's murder. The day of the murder, after dining and dashing out of a restaurant, Buffy and her friends drove around and hung out at West Edmonton Mall. At one point, Buffy said La Boucan talked about killing someone, taking her aside and saying, We're going to kill someone tonight. Do you want to join in? Buffy had testified that she thought he was joking. In the evening, La Boucan, Briscoe and his girlfriend went to West Edmonton Mall and came back and La Boucan reported, We found someone. The group then drove to a motel where Briscoe's girlfriend lived. Buffy had testified that Labucan and Briscoe retrieved items from a ditch, which she believed to be weapons, and put them in the trunk of the car. They later returned to the mall with Labucan, who said he was going to pick up the girls to take them to a rave. Buffy said she didn't suspect foul play was coming. Labucan, Briscoe, and his girlfriend then went to the mall and came out with Nina and her friend. The whole group then drove to the Edmonton Springs golf course where Nina was murdered. When Buffy was 16 years old, she helped murder and sexually assault 13-year-old Nina Cordepat. In April 2005, Cordepat was kidnapped and taken to a golf course west of Edmonton by three men, two women, one of them Buffy. The girl was raped and bludgeoned to death. Buffy, whose identity remains protected under the Youth Criminal Justice Act, was the youngest of the five convicted killers. In 2009, Buffy was sentenced to four years in custody to be followed by another three years of supervised probation. The sentence is officially over on November 9, 2016. Making her final required court appearance this week, Buffy spoke about some of the challenges she had faced and expressed her thanks to those who have helped her along the way. In his 2009 sentencing, Justice Adam Germain noticed that in 2005, Buffy was essentially living in West Edmonton Mall, doing what she could to stay alive. The teenager was using crystal meth, she sharpened her teeth, drank blood, and wore a set of throwing knives. That night on the golf course, Buffy put her foot on Cordepet's stomach to hold her down as the girl was being raped. Then she used a throwing knife to slash the young teen's neck. As the judge noted, this was occurring around the time others bludgeoned Miss Cordepet to death. Jermaine convicted the teenager of second-degree murder and aggravated sexual assault and gave her the harshest possible sentence allowed under the Youth Criminal Justice Act. Buffy appeared before Jermaine one last time this week in Edmonton courtroom. She is 27 years old now, working full-time and engaged to be married. Buffy wrote a two-page letter to the judge. It was made in a court exhibit and a copy was obtained by CBC News. Since we started this years ago, I've run into quite a few snags and forks in the road, she wrote. Being an adult is never easy. I can clearly see that all we can do is transition to the best way we can because, let's face it, jumping into things isn't always the greatest thing to do, even when the, with the best intentions. 
The young woman thanked all those who have helped her over the past decade, including her probation officer, the Elizabeth Fry Society, and the court youth work, worker Mark, Mark Charrington. I'm so happy for her. The outcome speaks for itself, Charrington said in the interview with CBC News. This is what the Youth Criminal Justice Act is for, working with people such as this girl and providing her with the best protective factors we can and making an effort that's not just an hour or a day or a week or a month, but years. A decade of continued help and rehabilitation and reintegration. According to a letter submitted by Buffy's probation officer, there were setbacks along the way, with some breaches of the terms of her probation. In her letter, Buffy thanked the judge for giving me more than few chances, she added. I am pleased to inform you that I have not had any breaches in the past year. Jermaine told the court he thought Buffy's letter showed amazing insight and a big improvement from where we were seven or eight years ago at the start of the case. I almost feel like we've become family, Jermaine said, but I don't think you'll be offended when I say I'm glad we've come to the end of the road. Then he turned towards the young woman in the prisoner's box and said, All the best to you. This review is now concluded. Buffy left the courtroom with her fiancé. She was smiling. The family of Nina Cordepat was shocked and saddened Tuesday to learn that the new murder trial has been ordered for one of the accused convicted in her death. Joseph Labucan, 23, who is serving life sentence in the killing, was granted a new trial Tuesday in the 2-1 decision by Alberta's highest court. It's unfair that Labucan gets another chance when the 13-year-old Nina won't, her sister Tranda said in a statement to the journal. Slowly pour salt in the wound, then you will be close to the rotting pain we're going through, she said. The criminal case is stretching into its fourth year. Nina's mother said the numerous court cases have burnt her out, but insisted she'll sit through all the new trials as well. I'll be there to look them in the face all the time, Peter Atkinson said. On Tuesday, the Alberta Court of Appeal found that Court of Queen's Bench Justin Brian Burroughs erred in discounting Labrican's credibility as a witness when he took the stand in his own defense. One of the three judges who heard the appeal dissented. The approach taken by the trial judge undermines the presumption of innocence by imposing a penalty on those who testify compared to those who choose to stand silent. The 24-page ruling states, The accused is entitled to give up the right to remain silent but still enjoy the benefit of the presumption of innocence. The accused does not have to pick one of the expense of the other. The new trial overturns Labucan's conviction for first-degree murder, kidnapping, and aggravated sexual assault on April 3, 2005, killing of Nina. Labucan, 19 at the time of the slaying, has always maintained his innocence. Through witness testified during his trial that he was the ringleader in a plan to lure the girl from West Edmonton Mall on the promise of a party. In appeal court's decision, the events leading up to her death describe Labucan leaving the mall with Nina and her friends as they jumped into a car driven by a man who was later acquitted of the killing. That acquittal was also overturned on appeal. Three other teens were caught in the car that night. The group drove to Springs Resort Golf Course of West Edmonton where a wrench and sledgehammer were taken out of the trunk. It's then that Nina was struck with the wrench before she was raped and beaten to death, the decision states. Her body was discovered the next morning. In separate trials, one teen was found guilty of first-degree murder and another was found guilty of manslaughter. 
The third was found guilty of second-degree murder and is awaiting her sentencing hearing beginning March 23rd. During his own trial in 2007, Labuchan testified that he was unaware that the party was a ruse and said he entered a state of shock when Nina was attacked. He said he never struck or hurt her. Labuchan's mother cried when she heard the news of the su successful appeal. Oh, thank God, you have no idea how happy that makes me, Elizabeth Johnson said from Northern British Columbia. He is a really good kid, and for God's sake, he's definitely not a leader. In his hometown of Fort St. John, B.C., Labuchan's former friends still call him Body Cast Joe, referencing a plastic cast he wore following a highway rollover. They remember him for his exaggerated tales and constant lies. Bros wrote in his trial decision that Labuchan had a very great motive to be untruthful on the stand. But Alberta Highest Court found that Labuchan's motive to lie cannot be tied directly to finding of guilt. Alberta Justice Spokesman David Deere said the department is reviewing the decision and the Crown Prosecutor's Office may appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. It has 30 days to make a decision. We'll pursue this aggressively, Deere said. This is a second retrial ordered based on what the appeal court called errors made by Justice Burroughs in the case. Last year, one of the co-accused was ordered to stand trial again after Burroughs acquitted him of Nina's killing. The Alberta Court of Appeal found that Burroughs erred by failing to consider if the co-accused was willfully blind to the murder plot. He has yet to enter a plea. Labucan is currently being held in custody on unrelated criminal charges. In September 2008, he was charged with second-degree murder in the death of Edmonton prostitute Ellie May Mayer. He has not entered a plea on the charge and, and appears in court in Fort Saskatchewan on Thursday. His mother said the new trial in Cordopat's case is a chance at redemption for her son, who had been kept in solitary confinement in prison. He's not a bad person, she said. Anyone who knows him will tell you that. He was found guilty of killing prostitute Ellie May Mayer just two days before Nina was slain. Joseph Labacan pleaded not guilty at the opening of his trial Monday, but his lawyer said the defense did not dispute the Crown's case against him. The Crown read a statement of facts Monday morning that described how Labucan and two other people lured Mayer to a farmer's field near Fort Saskatchewan for sex before she was beaten to death. Justice Sterling Sanderman quickly convicted Labucan 26 of first-degree murder and sentenced him to a life in prison without parole for 25 years. Labucan is already serving a life sentence for sexually assaulting and fatally beating Cordopat, whose body was found at the Edmonton Springs Golf Resort on April 4, 2005. Michael Briscoe has been sentenced to life with no possibility of parole for 25 years for the first-degree murder, sexual assault, and kidnapping in the 2005 killing of 13-year-old Nina Cordopat. Briscoe, 41, was found not guilty in the murder of Ellie May Mayer, who was killed two days earlier. In his ruling Wednesday, Judge Keith Yamuchi reads experts from the 108th-page decision in which he cited Joseph Labucan is the main culprit and considered Briscoe as possible accessory who drove the car to both murder scenes. Judge Yamuchi repeatedly labeled Briscoe as unreliable witness who deliberately exaggerated and fabricated statements portraying himself as a concerned and benevolent innocent in Nina's murder. Briscoe fabricated crucial aspects of his testimony, Judge Yamuchi said. He lied. Briscoe was cleared 
of the first-degree murder of sex trade worker Miss Mayer, 33, who was killed April 1, 2005. Her beaten body was found several weeks later in a field northeast of Edmonton. Briscoe's ex-girlfriend Stephanie Bird had testified at the trial that Briscoe and Labucan attacked Miss Mayer after they picked her up in Edmonton and drove her out of the city. But Judge Yamuchi accepted defense lawyer Charles Davidson's argument that Miss Bird was an unreliable witness. Though Briscoe was likely present at the death of Miss Mayer, Judge Yamuchi ruled that he couldn't determine beyond a reasonable doubt that Briscoe knew she would be murdered. The same was not the case for Nina Cordopat two days later. Although Briscoe didn't sexually assault or kill the 13-year-old, he knew or ought to have known that she would be murdered, Judge Yamuchi ruled, adding that Briscoe aided in the sexual assaults. Briscoe admittedly drove the car to the golf course but denied any knowledge that the four people with him planned to kill the girl. He testified that he never harmed the girl and was afraid for his own life that night. Other witnesses testified that violence was previously discussed in front of Briscoe and he helped choose the tools that Nina was assaulted with. Five or six times that day, Labukin had said, I feel like killing someone, Judge Yamuchi noted, and had kept Miss Mayer's pinky finger from the previous killing. Briscoe was an accessory to murder, Judge Yamuchi said, since he drove the group to the golf course and provided a set of pliers to Labukin. Briscoe may not have known all the details, but he knew that fact, he said. Briscoe knew of Labucan's intent and plan to kill someone. The verdict is likely one of the last chapters in Nina Cordopat's murder case. Four young people in the car with Briscoe and the teenager that night are already serving prison, prison sentences for the roles in her death. A 23-year-old woman who was convicted as a youth of second-degree murder for her role in Cordopat's killing took the witness stand to testify against Briscoe, 41. The woman, who could not be identified, recounted picking up Cordopat at West Edmonton Mall on April 3, 2005, and then driving to a golf course west of Edmonton. She testified ringleader Joe Labucan told Cordopat they were going to a party, but said Labucan had earlier said that they were going to kill someone that night. Once at the golf course, the woman testified Stephanie Bird hit Cordopat and then said Labucan then raped the teen. After that, Briscoe held down the victim's arms while Michael Williams raped her, she said. As Cordopat was putting her clothes back on, the woman said Labucan tried to cut her throat with a throwing knife and then choked her with a wrench. She said Williams then made her put her foot on Cordopat's chest while he hit her in the crotch with a sledgehammer. Labucan and Williams then took turns hitting the teen with a sledgehammer, she said. After that, she said Labucan stabbed the victim with a throwing knife and made her stab her in the neck. The woman testified some of the group ending up in a motel and said in the morning Labucan took a bread bag out of the fridge and asked if she wanted to see something. She then showed her a severed fing pinky finger wrapped in a paper towel and told her that he had taken it from his last victim, who he described as a prostitute. She testified Bird told her later that day that she had helped with that and said Briscoe was nodding his head. Court has heard Mayer was beaten to death on April 1, 2005. The sex trade worker's body was found in a farmer's field on May 6, 2005, and she was missing her left pinky. On September 26, Labucan, who is 27, was convicted of first-degree murder and handed his second life sentence after admitting beating Mayer to death. His first life sentence came in 2007 on his conviction for murdering Cordopat. 
Bird, 24, was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 10 years on January 6, 2010, after her initial 12-year sentence on manslaughter conviction was overturned by the Supreme Court. Williams was handed a life sentence with no parole eligibility for 10 years in October 2007 after earlier pleading guilty in a youth court for first-degree murder. December 2015, an Edmonton mother who turned grief for her slain daughter into a crusade for changes to the justice system has died. She had an amazing strength, a strength that didn't even know existed in people, Peach's older brother Howard Atkinson said. While undergoing chemotherapy for colon cancer, Peach fell ill with pneumonia, Howard Atkinson said. Her body couldn't fight back. She died Friday afternoon, he said. With all accused tried separately and a rash of appealed, it took a decade for the cases to make their way through Alberta's courts. Picha was a courthouse fixture throughout. Howard said he doesn't know how his sister endured hearing the grisly testimony over and over. You can't even wrap your head around the violence that some people are capable of, he said. Picha also organized marches and spoke at rallies with hopes of changing the justice system, including calls for harsher sentences for youths convicted of crime. She also pushed for criminals serving life sentences to spend more time behind bars before becoming eligible for parole. Picha was a vocal advocate for inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. Howard said that her family is hearing from people who said they didn't know her but have been inspired by her advocacy. It feels good to know that she has an effect on people. Thanks for listening. This is a part of the ACAST Production Network.